And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Stop it! Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back. To the bins. I got nowhere else to go. I got nowhere else to go. I got nothing else. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. In a rare, unfortunately rare moment, uh, I am joined by my very good buddy, Mr. Scott Gardner. <laughs> what do you mean rare moment? This, I mean this doesn't happen nearly enough. No, I'm, this is very true. And I, this is I very true. You know, I'm not saying it's your fault. I'm not saying it's my fault. I'm not saying it's the listener's fault, although maybe it is. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's just the way the way our schedules have worked. You and I haven't gotten together nearly enough. Me and Bill haven't gotten together nearly enough. Me and Dave haven't gotten together nearly enough. And the four of us haven't gotten together with each other nearly enough. Yeah, this is very true. You know, I'm happy that we're still putting content out there, but I think we need to align our schedules or, you know, life has got to let us align our schedules better. I totally, totally agree. Yeah, it's it, that's all it is, really. It's just one of those things where life just is getting in the way. Real life, damn it. Yeah. You know, it's work and shitty schedules and all that. That that's my biggest thing lately is my work schedule has just been atrocious lately, and it's uh, you know it's been adjusted to where I'm coming in just ridiculously early in the morning, at, at least for me anyway, and it prevents me from staying up, you know, very you know very late in the evening at all. So and that's prime podcasting time for most of us. So. Yeah, it sucks. I think about this, oh. and, and like when, when you and I first started doing this together, uh, you were working a very different schedule back then, and, and we were generally getting together at like midnight to start recording. So we would frequently right. record until like 2, 2.30 in the morning, and, and then I would you know have to get up at 7 and go to work. Uh, so it's, you know, <laughs> the listeners should know that there are times where we sacrifice for them. Uh, not that that earns us anything other than somebody saying, yeah, you did that. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> Very yeah. true. And, and, and they don't owe us a thing. I just want to, you know, go <laughs> make sure I'm clear about that. They don't owe us anything. We do this because we enjoy doing it. End of story. <laughs> but just the same. Uh, have you been do, being, being a comics buying MF lately or what? I bought some comics today, as a matter of fact. Um, you know, I, I had a, a doctor's appointment to go to, and we and still blew it use off to get some comics. That's <laughs> no, 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 not at all. But, you know, our, our doctor, you know, we, we stuck with our doctor from where we used to live. Um, you know, we moved to a different area of Florida. So it's a bit Upstate of a trek. New York? No, no, not at all. <laughs> you know, but going over there. 
you know, I mean, we lived there for nine years. And so, you know, I know the area and everything. And so I was thinking about, you know, this doctor's appointment was later in the afternoon today. And I thought, let me go over there a little bit early. I'm going to go by the the antique mall and just see if there's any, you know, new comics to check out or anything. And I, I did. I got just a small handful of stuff. Nothing nothing spectacular, although there was one I was pretty proud of. I got um, Incredible Hulk number 281, which is just nothing special about it. It was just one that I needed for the collection, but I was just really happy to find it for four bucks. It wasn't bad. And I, I've always thought it has a cool car. It's the one where... Uh, uh, the Hulk is in a spacesuit that's all like ripped up and the helmet is shattered and everything. It basically looks like he's dying of asphyxiation in space. It's just a really cool looking cover on it. Um, I've never read this one or anything. I just needed it for the collection just to fill in numbers. And then I got uh, four issues of Green Arrow. And it's funny because the lady that rang me up, she was just a sweet old lady at the antique shop. She's ringing me up. She goes, oh, somebody really likes Green Arrow. And I'm like, no, I actually really hate Green Arrow. And she kind of looked at me funny. I said, but I really like the artist that drew these issues and I collect all his work. So <laughs> so but she just thought it was really funny that I was buying something that I didn't even really care for. But um, but, yeah, they were they're all I think they're all. Um, Apero issues, although one of them may be a Netzer issue or Na- Mike Nasser issue, I forget, but it's it's one of the two of them um, on all these issues. It's the only reason I'm picking those up, and I actually probably paid a little bit more for them than I really needed to, but it was one of those things where, you know, it was slim pickings and they were there, and I was like, eh, what the hell, let me just pull the trigger on them. So. But yeah, I've been doing pretty good lately. I went to... Uh, I went to another antique mall over the weekend and got a couple of things. I got a, a Justice League. I was looking for Justice I saw League that of you posted that one twelve. Yeah, I was really happy to find it for five bucks. And I thought, you know, you watch, I'll get home, and it's like somebody's like magic markered through it or some ridiculous thing. But it's actually in great shape. I got it home, opened it up, and I was like, oh, thank God, it's not like missing any pages or anything like that. And just a couple other random books, but yeah, I, I've still been a comics buying fool lately. So yeah, I, my comics buying fool level, <laughs> whatever it's worth, <laughs> uh, has kind of escalated of late. Uh, I, I, you know, I've definitely got the incentive to go to the comic store, which I I've had that for. Uh, but now I I kind of have been dipping my toe. Uh, you and I had a whole conversation about this the other day, which was not a podcast, just us talking but i've been dipping my toe more into uh you know the ebay buying uh to fill some some issues that i that i need and i've posted things on uh and then in the last conversation we were talking about you know some books that seem to be uncommonly low and is it worth bidding on them isn't it uh and and uh, you know my my impression now having experimented with that a little bit after we talked is that um, it's worth it, but don't get your hopes up. Right. You know, because if you do it on a bunch of books, maybe one or two of them is going to slip through and then all these other ones you're going to miss out on. And you have to fight. I mean, you really got to fight that urge to just keep bidding up when people outbid you. Because, yep. yeah, I mean, that's what the seller wants. But, you know, that's that's where you get yourself into trouble. That Then you have, then you have the buyer's remorse that you paid more than you should have for the book. Uh, but I, I ended exactly. up getting two that way. I bid on a bunch of different things, and you know, I came in with I came in with lowball to reasonable. I, you know, I, I didn't. Not every one of them was really low, uh, but then you know, that's where you got to watch yourself that you don't go too unreasonable. Uh, but 
uh, for Daredevil, uh, which is one of those series that I've decided I'm trying to get issues up to issue 200. I kind of put that as my cutoff. So, you know, my goal is issue 1 through 200. The earliest issue I actually have is number 9. So, this, you know, that that oh wow, that first 10, uh, you know, that, that those are going to be hard to come by. But anyway, uh, in that run, I have a solid run of number 94 to 200, except for 131 and 132, which are the first appearances of Bullseye. Which is weird, uh, because 131 was the first issue. The only comic I ever subscribed to in the mail was Daredevil. Somebody gave it to me as a Christmas subscription one year. Uh, and 131 was the first issue I got through that subscription. So I know I had the issue, but I don't know what happened to it. I don't have it anymore. Uh, so I bid on, you know, there were auctions where neither one of them had been bid on yet. And I bid on both of them. Uh, and I got 132. I did not get 131. That went crazy high on the dollar amount. But I got 132 for, you know, I still have to pay shipping on it, but I got it for 450. Oh, that's not bad. So that was, that's I thought that was a all. good buy. And then the other one I bought was the only issue I'm missing on Marvel Feature is number four, which was the first three issues were the Defenders. Ant -Man, number number four was Ant Man. Uh, yeah. And I got a copy of it. It's kind of WTS, but it was, but I bid $2 on it. And I got it. So. Hmm. I ain't bad at all. Yeah. I mean, if I see that somewhere in decent shape. Is that a Gil Kane be... cover on that one? Uh, no, I think it's a Herb Trimpey. Oh, okay. If, if I remember right, I'm not looking at it at the moment. And I haven't gotten those in the mail yet. But I've gotten some good buys. I, I you know, I, I've posted a couple things. I've gotten Commandy number one, which, you know, I thought might go like stupid for stupid money. And I got that for, I think, $12. I got uh, first issue special number eight, which is the first ever appearance of Warlord, and I got that for like twelve dollars. Uh, so I, you know, I thought those were very good buys. Yeah. Uh, and now, now I'm, you know, having bought a few comics through there, uh, I managed to stop at the comic store last week, and I posted something about you know, mail call and comics uh, store run. But now I'm just itching to go to, like, every comic store. That's the bad thing about this. It just makes you want to go more and more. Yeah, it does. Yeah. The more you well, get, you know, the more I, you want. Last weekend, as we record this, last weekend, you know, was Super Bowl Sunday. And I had, you know, I this is the time of year I, I, I was thinking about this because uh, I get, I still continue to get emails. I can't remember the fellow's name, but there's a fellow that holds a... Uh, a comic convention in the Atlanta area. And he always makes a point to do one on Super Bowl Sunday. So when I lived up there, Bailey and I would end up meeting up, either going together or meeting up at this convention. And I continue to get the emails, even though I haven't lived there for a long, long time. And I got the email the other day and it just kind of made me melancholy. It's like, damn, I really miss getting together with him and, and going to this thing and everything. So I thought, well, let me message Bill and, and, you know, tell him I'd be willing to drive over to, to Tampa area if he wanted to go hit. There's a place over by him called um, Urban Legend. That's a really that's good, a good comic store. shop. The guy's like fantastic. Place. Yeah, it's, it, the guy's really nice, and he's always got a really good selection. His prices are super reasonable. He's easy to work with. I, I just love that shop. So I messaged Bill, but unfortunately he had a bunch of personal stuff going on, so I wasn't able to get together. And I was like, damn. So I ended up getting in the car anyway on Saturday, I think it was, with the intention of I'm just going to drive over there myself, just go by myself. But I never made it. I made it as far as the Lakeland Antique Mall and then got busy there. And 
after several hours of being there and just my feet hurting and everything, I was like, eh, I know it's only another like 20, 30 minutes down the road, but I'm just, I'm done. I'm going to go home for the day. So I, I never made it to the shop I intended to go to, but I, I made out. I got a few things, so yeah, I, mean, I was happy. Of, uh, Yosemite Sam. I know you said your feet hurt, but I'm thinking, don't be rushing me. <laughs> <I'm a brain. laughs> and my head hurts. <laughs> my feet hurt. <laughs> yeah, lately, uh, I, I've you know we've had some things, personal things that have kind of kept me uh, very close to home, which has kind of kept me from running out to the. We got one comic store uh, in particular. We got a few that I like to go to, but there's one in particular where they usually have some good buys, and I'm itching to go there. Uh, but soon, and for the rest of my life, what is that? <laughs> I don't even know what that's from. I can't think of it. Some like it you'll regret familiar. it soon and for the rest of your life. But anyway, it's, it's lyrics from a song, but I can't remember what song it is. Ah. Eh. But anyway, we picked <laughs> two random books to talk about today. Which you know, it's funny that when we have gotten together to talk, we've done very little of the random book thing because we always seem to have some other kind of thing going on. Uh, so I'm kind of had agenda. Yeah, I'm happy to have random books today for us. Um, you know, we'll go back to some sort of agenda probably next time. And the book I picked for today, and I'll tell you exactly how I picked it. I had to do something and I found myself sitting in a waiting room for about an hour. And it was the first book I read while I was sitting there on my iPad. Uh, so that's the book I picked to do today. <laughs> no, No deeper meaning than that. And it is Daredevil, Volume 1, Number 52, which has a cover date of May 1969. It was released on March 11th of 1969. It's written by Roy Thomas. The penciler is Barry Smith, inked by Johnny Craig, lettered by Sam Rosen, and edited by Stan Lee. At this point, you got to wonder how much editing Stan actually did. He was probably like, yeah, that's good. That's great. You know? <laughs> so the, the cover... Uh, by Barry Smith and Johnny Craig actually just almost jumps out to me just like if you showed me this I would say either Barry Smith or Jim Steranko I don't think there's anybody else who I would yeah. possibly consider as having done it and I'm not sure I would have gotten it right I thought it was Steranko I was kind of surprised when I started reading the issue because I'd, I'd never even seen this before um, when I opened it up and started reading and realized that it was Barry Smith and, and not Steranko, I was kind of surprised, especially after that cover, because, yeah, that screams Steranko to me. Well, Barry Smith, I think, you know, I think he was heavily influenced by Steranko. Uh, and this is relatively early in his tenure. Uh, and it's his, I, I, you know, as best as I know, I don't think he has a huge comic book uh, bibliography. I think a lot of his artwork is going no. to other things. Uh, but his style, his style, I think, has, has while it, it's stayed consistent, I think it has become much more refined over the years. And this is early on. I think, uh, you know, his early work, like on Conan, was really good. And, uh, you know, a lot of his later stuff. And this, this you know, we're going to talk a little bit about the artwork as we go along. Uh, but there's, to me, there's flashes of brilliance in this. And that's what we'll talk about as we go on. And and you might do you remember uh, of crap? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember a fanzine that existed before back issue 
um, pretty sure it's a Tomorrow's publication as well. It's called Comic Book Artist. Sure, yeah. So I've started reading that, and I read the so far I've read the first two issues. I just started reading the third one, and there was an article in there, an interview with uh, with Smith that was talking about you know his early stuff and everything. So I think that's why I was so surprised to you know open this file up and see you know it was Daredevil, and I it was like. Well, that's weird. I was just reading an interview with this guy that supposedly covered like all of his comics work, of which he himself admitted there's not really a huge body of the stuff. And I don't remember there being any mention whatsoever of Daredevil in that article, so I just thought that was kind of weird. Hmm. That is kind of strange. But he did this one. I don't, I don't, you know, I, I didn't really look for his bibliography, so I'm not sure how much else he did. Uh, you know, what else he did in this particular era? I specifically remember him doing, uh, I think it was X-Men number 50. Uh, but yeah, I don't remember a lot, but anyway, <laughs> the, uh, the cover, which I said, as I said, looks to me to be like a Starenko, uh, type image, you know, which is that sixties pop art feel that in almost Andy Warhol feel, uh, it's got daredevil and the black Panther coming towards the reader. Uh, and they're they're over a kind of a yellow checkered uh, patterned uh, rooftop maybe, uh, and then there's three people in the background who are coming towards them that they're all just kind of like uh, you know with light blue coloring that's it, so they're almost like frozen, uh, and then there's a white background behind that. It's it's like I said it's kind of got a surreal feel about it, which I think is probably Barry Smith's. Uh, and for that matter, Jim Steranko's uh, calling card. Uh, I do like it a lot. I would say it's influenced by Steranko and Kirby. Because the two figures look like they could be Kirby. Anyway, the synopsis for the story is... The title is called The Night of the Panther. And the synopsis is, While patrolling the city, Black Panther is stopped by the police. And D.A. Foggy Nelson, who mistake his silhouette for that of Daredevil, they then ask the hero for his assistance in administering an antidote to Daredevil, who is at the risk of death due to medical treatment reacting badly with the radioactive particles in his blood. Finding the hero, Black Panther manages to administer it, but also learns Daredevil's secret identity. The two then break into Star Saxon's place to rescue Karen Page from him and capture Star in the process. However, while being administered first aid, during which Karen begins to suspect Matt Murdock is Daredevil, Saxon escapes, and the two heroes pursue him. Daredevil wants to fight Saxon alone, and so Black Panther leaves with the knowledge that Daredevil will be an ally in the future, and that he will keep the hero's identity safe. Facing Saxon alone, Daredevil defeats Saxon. However, unable to kill him and wanting to keep his identity secret, Daredevil is forced to let Saxon go free. So it's it's a, I mean it's I guess a fairly simple story. I do like the aspect that in the dark, you know, when they just saw a silhouette, the police actually mistook the panther for Daredevil because he's got the little ears, which Daredevil like are similar to Daredevil's little horns. Uh, you know, I, I enjoyed the story in general, and then I started saying to myself, Star Saxon, Star Saxon, I know that that's somebody. And he's he's, yeah. he's got a you know kind of a little bit of a strange background because he went from being just kind of like a, a strange thug to Mr. Fear, and then eventually became the Machine Smith, which you know ah, I, I know from Captain America. 
Yeah. Okay. I knew I, I like you. I knew I knew him from something, but I was lazy and did not look it up. So. Well, I I, I had all that energy to look it up. <laughs> so yeah, he's he's you know got got quite an interesting story when you look at his whole history. But at this point, he was only Star Saxon. Uh, and then then there was the, you know in looking at his history, there was a point where he had worked on some like. Uh, Doombots and had sent them out to do his bidding so I, I always found that to be an interesting uh, kind of a, a story that they could do is whenever looking back in the past that they said yeah this is a story that they didn't do Dr. Doom right well we're going to claim that was a Doombot uh, and then they just kind of like write it off that way uh, it makes it real easy for them to, to get rid of the embarrassing ones uh, and, and that's you know that's kind of where they went with that. Uh, as far as you know, this story itself, to me, the big thing is the art. I think overall it's really good. I really enjoy the layouts. It's it's very dynamic. It, it definitely has that that Jim Steranko feel about it. However, there are a couple of facial images that I'm just like, well, couldn't you put a little bit more detail into that? Couldn't you have just done, you know, made that look a little bit better, particularly on Star Saxon? Uh, you know, I think he's he's his face is poorly drawn frequently, and I guess that's trying to show his madness a little bit. And uh, the drawing of Karen Page is often a little overly simplistic. But other than those two complaints, which I kind of am putting into the category of nitpicking to some extent, I think the art in this is really sharp, and I think it's very dynamic. I think it, it's going places that you didn't see you know, both these books going in this era. I think it's groundbreaking in its own way. Any thoughts? Uh, a number of them. The biggest takeaway for me art-wise with this was um, while it is clearly Starenko-influenced and, and really heavily Kirby-influenced, you can tell he's doing a real Kirby riff here, Um the real impression I got from this, or the thing it most reminded me of, was early Keith Giffen, who I think also was very enamored of those two artists, and possibly of, of Windsor Smith himself, I'm not sure. That's a good call. This reminds me a lot, now, and I didn't make the connection until you just said it, but it reminds me of those issues of the Defenders that, that Keith Giffen Defend did. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Ex that's exactly it, yeah. On the third page, second panel, where uh, Black Panther is leaping basically at us, the, right, the Reaper, right, right. I know I have seen Keith Giffen use that exact same pose a number of times. Um, I couldn't tell you when and where, but I know I've seen it. So, yeah, that's that's almost like a stock image that, uh, that he's used before. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if it was within that uh, that Defenders run that he did. But yeah, that that was definitely the vibe I got off of this, especially um, the Star Saxon guys. Some of the face facial expressions he has and, and everything looked very very Giffen to me. Um, I like you know art wise, I think it is pretty good. Um, it's it's not. I mean, it, it's very fluid, though. I mean, it, it kind of comes and goes. For the most part, it's very good. It's very dynamic. But if you pay a little bit too much attention to it, you can also see some serious flaws in it because Daredevil himself 
is quite rubbery. Um, page 16, last panel, when he's jumping out the window, he's very, like, elongated and stretchy and kind of weird-looking. He almost looks like he is a stretching character. I would, I would bring you to page 12, page 12, the middle panel, Daredevil. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like his head's on backwards or something. Yeah. That one's a little bit weird, but the, the one that really jumped out to me was page 18, second panel, where he's like leaping and jump and he's grabbing a hold of a, uh, a lamp, or I mean a flagpole. And he's just all out of proportion. You know what he's that looks way like too to stretchy, elongated. You know What's what that, that looks like to me? That looks like he's almost doing a, a fisheye lens. Oh, yeah, yeah. But but I I'm gonna so that. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna let that one pass and say it's all right because of that. But then the next panel when he's yelling out Star Saxon, boy, does that one need some better detail? Yeah, he's he's a little stretchy on that one as well. But that said, I mean, it's not like it's horrible or anything. It's not like it took me out of the story. I definitely think the art um, is the big thing with this because I found the story itself. I mean, the story is pretty simplistic. It was it was more the the style of it. Um, it was I don't know. It was kind of weird. It was I don't know for the era that it is. I felt like it should be a little more something i don't know it was it was it was just it was riddled with cliche dialogue and you know that sort of thing. it was it was very marvel but in not necessarily in a good way you know what i mean it was it was like it was like a it was like a very cliched version of early marvel well, like playing in all the worst cliches type of thing i i think the Execution has the cliches, but I think the overall story with the kidnapping of Karen Page, with Black Panther figuring out that Matt Murdock is Daredevil, with Star Saxon knowing that Matt Murdock is Daredevil, and with Karen Page starting to become suspicious of the fact that he's Daredevil. And, and boy, Karen, you got to be so stupid that it took you this long to be suspicious. But you know, <laughs> be that as it may, uh, I do know that you turned into a drug addict as time went on, so maybe that's the excuse. Anyway... Uh, I think that's the overall theme and thing in this particular book. I think that's where it, it, it gets its gravitas from. Uh, and, and just, you know, the overall dilemma that Daredevil has with, you know, what am I going to do now that this guy's figured out who I am? What am I going to, you know, how am I going to handle this? And, and there is no good answer for that. So, you know, the fact he ends up letting him go. So how does that resolve? Does does Star Saxon end up getting like conked on the head or something? Or no, I I don't think that ever gets resolved. I think he becomes Mister Fear, and he's I, I don't think he I guess he doesn't feel the need to uh, to exploit that ultimately. And I'm not sure. I'm gonna have to read ahead a little bit to when he becomes Mister Fear. There is there is as I understand that there is an existing Mister Fear, and then he takes over that role. And now, Mr. Fear's comes. not the he's not the one all dressed in black with like the black slouch hat that gets killed inside of a tombstone or something. Is it is that is that the guy or is that somebody different? I'm I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure of, of uh who that would be. It's um, a I wanna say he was like on on Frank Miller's first Daredevil issue. I think he's on the cover. Oh no, I, oh, think no, I know who you're thinking of. Uh and all of a sudden I'm drawing a blank on his name. It's either 
the Reaper or something yeah, like guy, that. He, he had like the death touch. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you. Yeah, okay. So, so not the same No, different character. character. Um, All right, so my, my only real thing with the story itself, as far as questions or what, is, okay, so I was kind of vaguely, because at one time when I was doing my Marvel read-through, Daredevil was on the list, but I just got to a point where I, I couldn't hang with it anymore. Um, so I am aware of who, um, what was his name, Mike? Mike Murdoch was? Yes, which was that, a very That he very wasn't really... Thing. Yeah, it was. It was very silly. It was very hard for me to, to get through that stuff. But he was not even a real person. He was a persona of Matt Murdock. So there's a scene here where Karen says, uh, but Mike Murdock is dead. So how did that, what's the story with that? Yeah, he, he faked the death of Mike Murdock. He, he, you know, you know the original story that he, he created that as a character to kind of throw them off the track of him being Daredevil. Right. Uh, oh, it's my, my twin brother, Mike. He's crazy. Uh, and and then eventually it just became too much to deal with it all, so he faked Mike Murdock's death and then left it at, you know, somebody else is pretending to be, or somebody else has taken over the role. Huh. So... Does the world think that there's another Daredevil, or or is this just done for basically for Karen's benefit? That's a very good question. I'm not certain on that. Because I remember there was a time where Iron Man did something very similar, where he faked the death of Iron Man, and then the world, at least for a time, until they, I guess, forgot to forgot about it conveniently in the storytelling where the world thought that there was a new Iron Man, you know, basically somebody else in the armor for a time. This was right around, I want to say this is right around, like, Iron Man, like, 200 or there, you know, that era, right, right. around that time. So I'm just wondering, because she says here, she says, uh, I know Matt's brother was the original Daredevil, but he's dead. I don't even know the identity of the new Daredevil. So I'm just wondering, again, you know, was this just basically done to keep her off the trail or or would the world at large believe at this point that you know that there is a, a a new daredevil essentially that there's now you know two daredevils yeah i don't know if there was a uh the world at large knowing it but i do think like the police knew and that type of thing i think it was beyond just karen it's been a while right. since i read the stuff and you see now if we had dave weeder on he could tell us i'm sure <laughs> He is our resident. See, I was Daredevil always under expert. the impression as well that that Daredevil was almost uh, like like he wasn't really um like well known. You know what I mean? Like other heroes knew him, and and you know the people within his title. But you know, as far as the greater Marvel universe, that he wasn't really well known. But that this issue kind of put the lie to that because I mean, obviously the police know him. You know, and they're they're actually you know trying to help him out and working with him and all that. So I was kind of surprised by that. But again, what I know about Daredevil and everything, and what I've read of it, I mean, it is very very limited and very small. So this this was an interesting read for me because uh, I, I had never seen this before. I, I didn't know these guys, uh, either of them, either uh, Barry Smith or uh, Roy Thomas, had ever worked on the title. So it was interesting. 
And I like the dynamic with him and, uh, and Black Panther. I didn't know Black Panther knew his secret identity and all that, so that was kind of cool. Yeah, I, I definitely, I didn't know that either. And I, I like when you go back to these issues and you, you realize you're dealing with the actual first meeting of the characters. Yeah. That, that makes it yeah. feel just a little bit more special to me. Yeah, it's neat. Yep. My, my only, uh, you know, honestly, my only issue with it was, uh, was the dialogue. I just felt it was, it was a little stilted. It was a little corny and cliched, but I mean, you know, that's, that's also, you know, that's Roy Thomas a lot of times too. So yeah, well, Roy, but Roy I felt like he was be... really at his most Stan-esque with this type of writing like he like he was really trying to lay on the stanisms you know well i was gonna say roy much like stan tended to be a little melodramatic in his dialogue right you know just a little over the top you know the villains speak and all of that uh i and, and then you know they, they they it's one of the things that i see so often that i always think is is kind of amusing is just when they talk so dramatically like they don't know that i am also the man that they call daredevil you know that, that <laughs> kind of thing you know it's it's like oh they just take it down a notch dude right exactly but <laughs> you know it, it's i i i find it easy for me to overlook that as a uh as a negative i get more of a kick out of it and i see it as more of a mostly as a silver age thing but that did carry into the bronze age quite a bit in marvel because you know everybody was learning you know learning at the altar of stanley right so you know there's this there's, there's something to be said for it and you know i i excuse me again i get a kick out of most of it, but when it's just too over the top, too often, that's where it starts to to wear me down a little. Right. But, yeah. Exactly. Know, but I can live with that. So, overall, though, I'm gonna say this is kind of like a uh, this is this is Barry Windsor Smith in development, uh, but it's still better than most you know most of the art that you're going to see out there i really really i i get a kick out of out of you know the artwork in here for the most part with the exceptions that we've talked about some of the facial expressions and then uh the you know the the, the anatomy stuff but the anatomy stuff it, it almost really doesn't bother me i don't know why it doesn't but it doesn't uh, I'm just looking page 12, 17, which is kind of a poster image. It looks like Daredevil's got a, a dislocated uh, left shoulder. <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I'm I'm cool with the artwork. Uh, I'm gonna. Get, I, I I'm, looked it up real quick when you started your synopsis, just because I was curious. So according to Mike's Amazing World, um, Barry Windsor Smith has 140 story credits. Now that's just interior work. That doesn't count covers because he he always Mike always separates covers into a, a separate thing. Right. So this is just interior art. This is either as the penciler, the inker, um, colorist, uh, sometimes writer, or the overall artist itself. So he has 140 credits listed between. 1968 and 1995 
This, according to Mike's list, is only his one, two, three, four, fifth published work, according to this. So I'm going to, since you have it over, what was was before this? Uh, So X-Men 53. Okay, so it was not issue uh, 50. Daredevil. So Daredevil uh, 50. Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. number 12. Daredevil 51, and then this one. And this is his last Daredevil for quite a while. He came back sometime, I think it was Daredevil, hang on, I can switch the view here. It was Daredevil like 50, or I mean, I'm sorry, not 50. It was like 80-something, I think. Yeah, 83 in 1971. So, yeah, quite a ways down the road. And then one other issue of Daredevil way down the road in 1986. So, yeah, not not much at all. So maybe that's why it wasn't mentioned in that article. Because whenever I think of Barry Windsor Smith, I think of, you know, some of the, the like, one-shots he did with, like, Iron Man or the X-Men or Conan the, you know, the Barbarian, because he was the original Conan penciler for, you know, what, like a couple of years, I think. Oops, this is worth investigating. I'm getting a phone call from Dr. Bill Robinson. Uh-oh. Dr. Bill, I am on the phone right now, or I'm I'm on Skype recording right now with uh, Scott. So Caller, you are on the air. Yes, so you're on the air. This this will make for awesome content because I am having a Mandela Effect CERN Super Collider. Okay. (laughs) I'm in an argument with my coworker right now about Raquel Welch and whether or not she's a Bond girl. Is she a Bond girl? No. That's what I said. Then why is she credited for Thunderball? He says, and he showed me a picture. It said, Sean Connery, Raquel Welch, Thunderball. And I'm like, then somebody's been messing with the Super Collider because I swear to God, Raquel Welch is not in Thunderball. No, I, I'm, I'm agreeing with you, and I'm looking up Thunderball right now as we speak. Thunderball in Wikipedia. So you know it's got to be accurate. <laughs> Starring. Angelina was looking that up, too. Sean Connery, Claudine Auger. She was originally cast as Domino. Claudine Auger played Domino, and I think she looked not dissimilar from Raquel Welsh. Okay, but how do you explain that? Photoshop, buddy. No. I'm telling you, that's Photoshop. I'm I'm continuing to look. Hold on here. Just uh, I'm, I'm reading to you off the Wikipedia page. Broccoli's original choice for the role of Domino Durval was Julie Christie, following her performance in Billy Lawyer in 1963. Upon meeting her personally, he was disappointed and turned his attentions towards Raquel Welsh. After seeing her on the cover of the October 1964 issue of Life, Welsh was hired by Richard Zanuck of 20th Century Fox to appear in the film Fantastic Voyage the same year. Instead, Faye Dunaway was considered for the role and came close to signing for the part. Uh, and then they go on to other people, whatever. So she, they considered her for it, uh, but she never got hired for it. Maybe she went to the maybe, set at some point. Maybe that was a mock-up poster. So there, no, there's yeah, a poster. So you know how I, in, in so this you know how in Google sources are. I don't know where you found that picture. He he pulled it up on his phone. I'm like, no, no, that's no, that's not true. No. See, I, I have my I headset on. Joe can't hear you. Oh, okay. Says it, so you can't. I mean, uh, I reject your reality and substitute my own because <laughs> mine is right well the reality is she wasn't in it why they have her listed i don't know i can't answer that so for you jason i'm going to sing the dr cox song wrong 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 <laughs> you're wrong 
recording. Have fun. All right. Thanks, Bill. All right. Bye. And that was Dr. Bill Robinson's Thunderball moment. <laughs> yeah, there is. Uh, you know how in Google, sometimes it'll have like commonly asked questions after you Google search something. And one of the commonly asked questions is what Bond film was Raquel Welch in? And it says Thunderball 1965, and it includes a poster image. And it looks like this is probably a teaser poster for mm -hmm. Thunderball. Yeah, I'm looking at it. Um, but it is. It, sa it says, look out. It says, here comes the biggest Bond of all. And it says, Sean Connery, Raquel Welch, Thunderball. So she was cast, but then she ended up pulling out to do uh, Fantastic Voyage. Yep. So, hmm, interesting. And after that interval, back to our regularly scheduled programming. <laughs> Which has nothing to do with Daredevil. Yep, there you go. <laughs> but, you know, that, that this just shows the listeners that we really do talk to each other when we're not recording. Because <laughs> Bill had no idea we were recording right now. Anyway, uh, so where were we when the phone started to ring? I don't recall. Uh, I think you were starting to do your grades, I think. Okay, yeah, so uh, despite the, the the failings that we've discussed, and we've pointed out more of the bad, worse images than the good images, I do think, again, the dynamism that this thing brings, uh, the storytelling, everything about it, I really enjoy, uh, despite the, the, the limitations in the facial renditions and some of the anatomy so i'm going to give the artwork a solid b uh and i think as he refined more he would that, that grade would go up but you know at this point in his career i'm going to say a solid b uh the story itself or actually rather the cover uh i think the cover is pretty cool it's a it's a poster type image but it also is giving you some of what you get in the story uh i'm also going to say a solid b for that the story is a little bit cliched as you mentioned, uh, but I but I do think there's some themes going on and some some different things that I think are pretty cool and it it read well despite the cliches. So I'm going to say a B for the story too. So it's a B B B. Uh, so overall, um, I guess a B. All right. Um, yeah, I I'm not far off from you. I really dig this cover. I feel like I shouldn't. Um, because it's it's very kind of empty, but it's also it's just compelling. It's just a really cool cover, and I like it because I think you can take the perspective a couple of different ways. Because at first glance, it almost looks like they're at the disco or something, but then on a different glance, it almost looks like you are laying on the ground looking up at tall skyscrapers, and these people are actually plummeting towards you. So it, it's it's really visually interesting from a couple of different perspectives, and I, I, I like that. So yeah, it's it's a compelling cover. I would actually say a, I'll say a B plus on the cover. I really like this. Um, interior art is a little bit too all over the place for me to to really love it, but I like a lot of it, and I really like that it heavily reminds me of uh, of early Giffen, before Giffen kind of went off the deep end and in, into that really weird shit that he does now. Um, so I, I like it from that perspective. Um, it it kind of felt familiar and comfortable to me in, in that aspect. I, I just wish it wasn't so, like, 
gooey and stretchy in certain instances, but I, I think that that I will chalk that up more to artistic license than uh, a, an actual shortcoming of the artist. I'm, I'm hoping I'm right on that assessment. Um, but it, you know, you can't fault it for its dynamism. I mean, it's the action's fantastic. It's very frenetic. Everything feels like it's moving. So I like it from that perspective. You know, I like that it's action-packed. Even in the dialogue sequences, something's always going on. So that that's really cool. Um, so art-wise on the interior, I'll, I'll go a solid B. Um, which might actually be a little bit more than it deserves, but I, I think the dynamism makes up for a lot of the shortcomings of you know anatomy and things like that. Um, where it falls a bit on its face for me, though, was the story. It just, I don't know, it, Roy was really laying it on thick with this one, with the dialogue and just some of the silliness, and may, maybe this a little bit of late 60s damage to it, too. Um, I, I'm not sure. But it, it read just a little bit funny to me. But, um, you know, it wasn't horrible or anything. It wasn't hard to get through. It was just a little bit like there was a lot of groans with this one as I was reading it just from the dialogue and stuff. Um, but that said, you know, it wasn't anything horrible. I, I'll say a C plus um, as far as the story goes. But overall, um, yeah, I'd say a, a solid uh, I'll say a solid B because I really did enjoy it much more than I thought I would because I am really not much of a fan of Daredevil. And Black Panther, eh, he's okay. I, I like movie Black Panther met better than I like comic book Black Panther, but uh it, yeah, it was fun. It was neat to see their first meeting and and that sort of thing. So, yeah, from more of a historical angle I think than anything else, I, I kind of enjoyed it for all that. So, yeah, it was a good book. It was interesting. It was it was something I probably would not have ever read on my own, so that was kind of cool. All right. So I'll take credit for forcing you to read this. <laughs> so you got a book for us today? I do have a book for us today, and I am very, very excited about this. So the reason I, I picked this particular book was I was very jealous that you recently had our friend uh, Professor Allen on the show. Now, I had reached out to Professor Allen a while back about doing a show together, and then it, it just hasn't happened yet. But he, he was amenable, and we just haven't made it happen. But then when I saw the books you guys chose, I was like, damn it. Why is it every time I'm not on the show, you guys end up picking books? And I'm like, I, oh, I would have really have liked to have been a part of that. That's so called FOMO. I, <laughs> Well, I didn't want to go, you know, and grab another Brave and the Bold, but that was the book I was most excited that you guys covered was that Brave and the Bold issue with Batman and Deadman because I'm totally a sucker for, for that stuff. But I didn't want to go with another uh, Brave and the Bold back-to-back, -back, but that that was kind of the vibe I, I wanted, you know, to for the book that I wanted to bring. So I was thinking, oh, what, what else could I go with if I'm not going to go with, like, Brave and the Bold? And I got to thinking... I loved it any time that Batman and Aquaman would team up in Brave and the Bold. But that got me to thinking, wait, wasn't there an issue of Aquaman with Batman in it? So I did some digging around. Sure enough, there sure was. Right towards the end of his uh, series, Aquaman number 61. Uh, this is Aquaman first series number 61. The April-May 1978 cover dated issue was actually on sale on the stands, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics on January 17th, 1978. Cover on this by Jim Aparo. Uh, now, Jim Aparo had been the regular artist on Aquaman up to the issue before this, issue 60. 
Um, and he would continue to do the covers for the series. But by this point, he wasn't the interior artist anymore, which I had kind of forgotten. Um, the cover, anyway, it depicts both of the characters that Aparo is most renowned for, Aquaman and the Batman. And I would, I, I loved any time these characters would team up in, like, say, Brave and the Bold, because of that reason. You, you, were, you were getting a great twofer. You were getting, like, the two characters that this guy was most known for, but together. And I, I just love that, because I, I love Aparo's Batman. Aparo's Batman is my Batman. And then... Apero's the one that has made me an Aquaman fan. Aquaman gets a lot of shit, and some of it pretty deservedly so, I guess. But I love Apero's Aquaman. And uh, so I, I was always really thrilled whenever these characters would get together. Uh, original cover price on this one, 35 cents. The story is The Armageddon Conspiracy. It is written by David Michelinie with pencils by... Don Newton. We'll talk more about Don Newton in a little bit. Oh, and also Inks by Bob McLeod. <coughs> okay. Mm -hmm. <coughs> oh, yeah, I swallowed wrong. Give me just a second. I just needed a little drink here. Don't do that. Oh, just by the way, <laughs> if you see in the chat, I put in uh, Mr. Fear and then the Deathstalker is the guy you were thinking of. Yeah, Deathstalker. That was it. <clears throat> I could not think of that guy's name. Yeah, Mr. Fear looks ridiculous. As ridiculous as Plant Man did in Submariner. <laughs> it would just be funny to have this guy go, I am Mr. Fear, and then you just start laughing at him. <laughs> <laughs> Stop it. Stop laughing. I'm Mr. Fear. Stop damn it. laughing at me. You have Arnold Schwarzenegger playing. <laughs> hey. Oh, I'm sorry. It just looks so ridiculous. <laughs> well, you told me to show you. Oh, forgive me. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to laugh. <laughs> oh, you're just licking your eyes. Oh, I told you I was sorry. I, I didn't mean to laugh. But you did. You think I'm funny, huh? You think I'm funny. Well, you got to admit. I mean, when you do that, you look like some big ape or something. Stop that! Stop this! That's not like it! That's the only way the body's supposed to look like! No, I'm not going to say it! Do you get a lot of me? But, uh, 
yeah, I, I recently posted that picture on Facebook of because I was reading some old Submariner, and and Blant Man was the villain, and I saw him. He's like walking around in his lair in that outfit, and I'm thinking, how, you know, how ridiculous is that, really? He's he's like <laughs> this big, tough-looking mug, and he's got this 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 plant apparel on. But anyway, he looks like he's dressing up as chlorophyll kid. Yeah, really. <laughs> so that that said, you can get back to we'll, we'll get back to our regularly scheduled synopsis. Sorry about that. I'm, I've stopped choking to death. Here we go. <clears throat> so we open to a title splash page showing Aquaman and Batman sans cape and wearing scuba gear caught in a net underwater in the port of Lisbon, Portugal, and about to be assailed by the forces of Cobra. Despite his seaborne strength, Aquaman is unable to break the reinforced titanium netting, but Batman says, I'm Batman, and makes quick work of it with his bat laser pointer. They escape just in time to avoid being harpooned by Cobra's goons and then set about taking them out, including what looks pretty convincing as uh, Batman straight up killing a guy by shattering the faceplate of his breathing apparatus. Aquaman rounds the men up in the titanium net and then orders electric eels to jolt the living hell out of them. He and Batman then swim away, leaving a trail of what pretty much looked to be floating corpses in their wake. We get a nice flashback to how this whole adventure began. A day ago and 22,300 miles above the Earth on the JLA satellite, Aquaman chats with his pals Green Lantern and Batman about a brief run-in he's had with a dude named Cobra. Batman knows him, having quite recently tussled with him in DC Special Series number one. An excellent read, by the way, and I highly, 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 highly recommend you track a copy down at your earliest convenience if you haven't already uh, gotten one. Batman figures out that a uh, ship Cobra plundered contained a shipment of poisonous chlorinated hydrocarbons and that he's probably not going to use them for anything good. The JLA computers point them toward Portugal as the most likely target for reasons. And sure, whatever. And it's off they go. Green Lantern to locate Cobra's invisible arc ship with his power ring and Batman and Aquaman to confront Cobra himself. Meanwhile, Cobra is monologuing to his captives, who are NATO diplomats of some sort, and reveals that he intends to gas every man, woman, and child in Portugal to show the world he's serious about being crazy, and that they, the diplomats, will be his witnesses and serve as messengers to the world to the extent of his mad power. Batman and Aquaman, hiding on a ledge outside and listening to these ravings, signal Green Lantern that it's time to attack. He puts the squeeze, uh, Green Lantern that is, on Cobra's arc as arc uh, as Cobra beams to it, and Batman and Aquaman attack his minions. Afterwards, the duo experience a slight rift as they disagree as to what action should be taken next: free the hostages or smash Cobra's death machines. But before they can decide, however, Cobra reappears and explains that he is quite aware of the powers and limitations of the entire Justice League and that all he had to do to thwart Green Lantern was to shift the spectrum of his arc's force field to yellow, his ring's one weakness. So Batman just kicks him in the stomach. For some odd reason, Aquaman, though rankled, holds back and just watches his colleague and Cobra tussle instead of lending a hand against the well-established psychotic terrorist murderer. 
And, of course, this bites them both in the ass when Cobra blinds Batman and launches the deadly carbon thingies that'll kill everybody if they ascend past 500 feet. Aquaman radios Green Lantern, who goes into action with his ring. Damn good thing these things weren't yellow. While Aquaman telepathically commands his sea pals to assist. Sadly, Cobra was prepared for this, and it all just turns into a big fish fry. So the heroes leap out the window into a dive that should probably kill Batman. Hitting the water, Batman takes out more underwater goons while Aquaman tackles the launcher mechanism with an assist from more sea creatures. Cobra, meantime, flees in his arc. However, one of the hostages slips his bonds and sabotages the controls, forcing the ship to splash down and begin to flood. Cobra abandons his craft, leaving everyone else to drown. However, he is clocked by Aquaman, who has been pursuing him, and they tussle. But the Sea King is forced to let the villain go in order to, to rescue the endangered hostages, so Cobra escapes. Later, aboard a NATO emergency vessel, Green Lantern drops Batman on the deck, reporting that the carbon thingies are all taken care of. Where's Cobra? asked the Dark Knight, and then gets seriously pissed when he hears Aquaman's answer. He begins to berate the moniker of the sea for having let the killer escape, but having recently lost his only son and with his wife missing, Aquaman has no time for Batman's shit and dives overboard and swims away. The end. Now, I hadn't read this in, oh my God, it's been a long, long, long time, but I still love it. I still think it's fantastic. And I was so happy to open the cover. And although it wasn't um, Jim Aparo, as I was expecting, I was not at all disappointed because it's the other great Batman and Aquaman artist, uh, Don Newton. Now, Don Newton took over for uh, Aparo on Aquaman, um, and I think he'd done some other uh, work on Aquaman prior to taking over the title as well, if I remember right. Uh, possibly that DC special series number one I mentioned before. I think he might have been the artist on that. But anyway, um, you know, I was I was uh, you know well familiar with him as an artist for both of these characters. And Don Newton, I mean, such a loss when he passed away so young because I mean he was really just beginning to become. Uh, you know what what he you know he could have been a real superstar in comics he was just starting to become popular and all that when he when he passed away but um, he's another one of those artists that <clears throat> I've, I've started really seeking out and trying to collect all of his work which um, is honestly not that much because again you know he was really just starting to become popular and all that uh, when he passed away so he doesn't have a huge body of work but the stuff that he did do, um, I, I always in, invariably end up really enjoying it, no matter what characters uh, that it is that he, you know, that he draws. Um, but I, I really love this. I thought the art is fantastic. I, I think it still holds up really, really well. And you know, I've always been a big fan of uh, of David Michelinie's writing. So I, I think the story's really solid on this. I think it's, uh, you know, it's engaging and interesting. And uh, I think he's got a really good handle on both of the characters. And most of all, I, I really like that it, it continues the saga of Cobra, who I think is a really interesting villain. And he, this was at a time when he'd really been, been kind of played up and he was starting to appear 
you know, in more places in DC, both with Batman and I, I can't remember if this was before or after his involvement with Superman, but there was even a time when he went up against Superman for, I, I think, a couple of issues um, in one of Superman's titles. And I like that, uh, you know, that despite being teammates on the Justice League and all that, that there's a little bit of tension between Batman and Aquaman. I think that makes this interesting um, in that aspect. So I, you know, I really enjoyed that. You know, anytime, you know, there's one of these adventures, whether it's Brave and the Bold or whatever, you know, where, uh, you know, characters that are, you know, where there's a, a, an artist that is, uh, you know, associated with, you know, the characters, you know, that are in that adventure together. I just, I don't know, it just works for me somehow. I really like that. I think that's really neat. Um. Really, my only quibble with the whole thing, and it's not really something you could lay on this individual story. It's just kind of a symptom of the character, I think, is the whole thing with with Green Lantern's weakness to the color yellow. That just gets so old. I mean, everybody, you know, makes fun and and bitches about Superman and Kryptonite, especially, you know, in the the Silver Age. But I I think this thing with Green Lantern and yellow was, was far worse than Kryptonite ever was. And I'm just wondering how how would that ever even how and why would that ever even become knowledge that somebody else would have that that would become, you know, that that was his weakness. That that seems to me like something that you would want to guard even more fiercely than your secret identity is that you your your greatest weakness is a color, you know, Mm. (laughs) because I mean. (laughs) <laughs> that that really, you know, I really rendered that Adam Bomb, but they took me out with a yellow toothpick. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so yeah, it just makes me wonder how 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 common a knowledge was it, and how did Cobra come across it? Because there's there's times in some of the Green Lantern stories that I've read where it almost seems like that's pretty common knowledge, like like everybody knows that about him. And that seems like that's a pretty dangerous piece of knowledge for for the world to have. Yeah, oh, absolutely. But, I, you know, I, I don't know how it became – I don't know if, it, know if it's common knowledge. I don't know if it, how it became, you know, knowledge that was shared. But you got to think at some point in a battle with some villain – it may have become apparent and somehow, you know, word spread. Like, that's the only way I think that you can kind of explain it in a way where it, it actually makes sense that you'd have that happen. Because otherwise, right. otherwise you know, like you say, you'd be guarding, that would be one of your close, most closely guarded secrets. You know? Absolutely. But, uh, see, to me, the, the quibbles, and they are quibbles on this, are... The cover coloring of the blue in the water makes it almost difficult to spot Batman at a glance. So it, it yeah. you you almost feel like it's just Aquaman versus Cobra, and then you have to look closer to see. Oh wait a minute, that's Batman in the net with him there, and there's no indication that Green Lantern is in it. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm just purely thinking from a marketing point of view. You know, you you want. Aquaman is not one of your A-list characters. He's he's a foundation character, but he's not A-list. Uh, so I think you know when you when you're gonna bring in guest stars like that, I think you want the potential readers to see it, because you want the people who read Batman or Green Lantern and don't read Aquaman to say, hey, let me pick up this book. 
Right. So I think the cover fails on that level. It does not fail on an artistic level, but it definitely fails on a marketing level. Uh, the, the story. No, I agree with you because it's funny to okay. it's funny to me that Cobra is played up so you know there's that big burst there. He's the deadliest man alive, Cobra, and he's really played up. In the meantime, look at Batman's blurb is at the very top and very very tiny. Guest starring oh Batman. <laughs> like, I, I, it, really? I mean, it, could it at least say Batman and Green Lantern? Right. Yeah. Why wouldn't it say that? I'm, and why wouldn't it have their logos? You know, he got Cobra's logo because. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even even kids that can't read yet or read well can you know, can recognize that emblem. You know, the the Batman, you know, whatever the logo of the time was for Batman. So you put the character's title logo up there in that guest starring spot or or somewhere on the cover to draw to, you know, him and Green Lantern both. So yeah, I agree with you. That's that's kind of a fail because I didn't not remember that Green Lantern was in this until he showed up in the story. I'm like, "Oh yeah, Green Lantern." Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm just looking at this story is David Michelini with thanks to Richard Comic Media News Burton. I wonder what that's about. Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, I tried to look that up and couldn't couldn't find anything on it. I don't know what that's all about. Yeah, Don Newton. I like Don Newton's art, and I agree with you that you know he. It's it's a shame we didn't get more of it. Uh, I much like we did with with Barry Smith. I'm looking at this and I'm trying to think of well, who who's he like who are the influences on him, uh, and there's nobody where it's clear like, you know. We could see the very, very clear Jim Steranko influence on, on Barry Smith. We could see the very clear Jack Kirby influence on him. And we could see the very clear correlation, even though it takes place later, with the uh, Keith Giffen artwork. In this, I'm looking and there's certain panels that, to me, feel similar, although definitely not... I don't believe there's an effort to ape his work, but I think maybe influenced by uh, in, in the way the panels are laid out. Uh, to Neil Adams, uh, in particular, Possibly, in yeah. particular, on page seven, the middle panel where Cobra's pointing to the delegates, that looks to me very much like a, a Neil Adams layout. Yeah, uh, and there's a few that that I would say that for, but again, I don't think he's stealing his style so much as his uh, his logistics, kind of. Right. So, you know, I see some of that in there. Um, I, I think the art is very compelling, and I think the storytelling is really good. And I think, you know, maybe that's where Neil Adams influenced him. Even uh, page nine, the bottom left panel of Batman's face, that reminds me a little of Neil Adams. Yeah. Cobra is strange because I, I just felt like the character had such potential to be, like, a major player. I'm talking, you know almost at the level of Joker and Lex Luthor, like really a major player in, in DC. And somehow he just kind of went away. <laughs> and I, I never understood that, um, you know, especially being like an international terrorist, you would think you could come up with just so many stories of him behind the scenes, manipulating things and, and, and just doing things that'll, you know, screw over the, the hero community at, at large. Uh, and, you, you know, you could have major complicated crossover things involving him. Uh, and I feel like he he was a lost opportunity. And somehow I picked up like one issue of Cobra by chance, like from a $2 bin. Uh, 
and then that became my uh you know one, one of the things that went on my want list i mean i think there were only what was it eight or nine issues of his series something like that seven 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 and uh you know i've i've I now completed that run uh, which was not that difficult, and I never had to pay significant money for any issue. Uh, but, you know, th- there's a level of satisfaction when you can do that. I do have to get that DC Superstars number one uh, that concludes the story from there. Uh, but other than that, you know, I feel pretty good that I've gotten his series. I, you know, I think this story overall just kind of flows nicely. I, I, I think, you know, give credit to the writing and the artwork, and I'm wondering how much of this is specifically scripted by Michelini and how much of it is, you know, the Marvel method where, where Michelini said, you know, I want these things to occur and that, you know, Newton took it and ran with it. I have no idea, you know, what level of, of collaboration they had as far as that goes. I think DC was more uh, inclined to script their stories, you know, in detail. Yeah, that's always been my impression. Yeah. So I think we get we got to give credit probably on both ends of that. Uh, but over, you know, I, I wish I had more to, to say other than I really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, I, I I like I don't mind the yellow weakness. <laughs> I'm just thinking about like the different things that have come up. You know, that to me that was that that's always been a staple with just about every hero they always had that one fatal flaw you know uh you know and and with marvel sometimes it got to the point of ridiculous if you separate thor from his hammer for 60 seconds he turns into a lame doctor um you know and they had to eventually do away with that because it was just like yeah this is just too silly uh you know and tony stark would you know (laughs) run out of electricity and then have to get the cigarette lighter from a car to get energy uh you know (laughs) you know and and then it would you know again we'd go to the melodrama of you know oh if only i were free to love so and so but my weakness prevents me you know and and you could go with thor's lameness as dr uh blake or or tony stark's heart and he has to wear the chest thing whatever it would be that you know it, marvel made the com the comics very soap opera ish or stan lee made the comics very soap opera ish and I appreciate that they did that, but it was a learning curve and a development that had to occur over time. And, you know, Green Lantern's weakness to yellow, you know, that that's what they had. Uh, but it was, you know, it was a big enough flaw that you could, you know, easily come up with things to threaten him. And that's the thing that I'm not going to champion that because I think it's lazy writing when you can't write things you know when people say oh superman's too powerful so i can't write him uh but when they do have a flaw it, i think it makes it easier for them to write him right so you know they can't they can't all be superman they can't all you know be almost invincible so you know weakness to yellow sure go ahead <laughs> I, I don't so much mind the weakness to yellow. I, I just I, I have a problem with it uh, being overused, used as a crutch. You know, much you know, much like you know, Superman with kryptonite in the in the Silver Age. Um, but again, you know, in the concept context of this story, with it being uh, seemingly common knowledge, that just you know that 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 seems like. It's, 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 and like I say, it just seems like dangerous knowledge, but it, it almost seems like 
Wow, it it makes Green Lantern seem a little stupid that he would allow that to happen if that's really what happened. You know, now maybe maybe Cobra knows because he, you know, he has this network and he's, you know, he's really done his homework and he figured it out by watching newsreel footage, you know, something like that. That then that makes it kind of cool in that aspect that he was able to suss this out, but that's not what the story tells you know mm-hmm. so that, that's one way you can interpret it i guess but i i tend to interpret it the other way around like like green lantern was just careless and now it, the knowledge is out there and <laughs> he's walking around with a t-shirt on that said i i i, <laughs> yellow. I uh I did a quick search here. One of the, one of the many features I really like of Mike's Amazing World, you know, on his website here is that uh, you know, there's like character chronologies and stuff like that. So I was looking here and with Cobra uh like you said you got the first 7 issues of his own series um and then that DC special series number 1, essentially the Batman story that's in there or Cobra story, whichever you consider it to be, was intended to be Cobra number 8. So the my understanding was the story was finished and everything, but they canceled the the book. So that's where that story uh, wound up. Uh, fantastic and well worth your time to seek out, especially the last two. Even if you don't really care that much about Cobra or any of this, um, the last two issues of Cobra and that DC special series uh, Cobra story with Batman, all done by Mike Nasser, and it, they're just fantastically drawn. I mean, just really really great stuff. But anyway, uh, he went on from there. Um, he was in Aquaman 58 through the issue we just looked at, 61. That Superman two-parter I was thinking of is the next chapter with Cobras. That's Superman 326 and 327. Man, I have not read those since I was a kid. All I know is it has something to do with the Kents. Like the like Cobra plucks the Kents out of time and threatens Superman with with the Kents somehow. Yeah, I, I, which you know, Chad, leads me to I, believe I put that the cover to that issue where he's got them like in a time oh, okay. level. Yeah. That makes me wonder so does that mean he knew that he knew that uh, Superman was Clark Kent? I don't I can't remember. I mean it's been so long since I've read that I cannot recall what the whole story was with that. Yeah, I don't recall either. Uh, I remember that was when I think that was like right uh, when they did the implosion, right? And and I remember like I, I remember that cover just really catching my my eye and thinking, oh, this is so cool. But I can't remember the story. Well, Cobra's a cool look. He's got a really cool costume, a really a cool look. Yeah, yeah. Well, well then which, he I guess was Cobra in, uh... makes sense. Duh. <laughs> I was looking here. He was in Wonder Woman 273 through 278. And so I was looking at just the cover images on this and going, ooh, this looks really good. I should track this down. And then I noticed in my database, um, I have all of those. <laughs> I don't think I've ever read any of them, but I have them. So, yeah. Just goes to show, this is why you should keep a list of what you already have, kids, so you don't end up buying the same things over and over again. And, and make sure you keep <laughs> that list updated, because even in the last yeah. few years, with my list and with my want list, I've bought issues I already have, and it just, there's, there's very little that's more frustrating than thinking, ooh, I picked up this cool book, I got it at a great price, oh, I already have it. You know, that's, yep. that's just a horrible feeling. Yep. 
You know what's funny? You know, maybe maybe Mike just hasn't updated in a while here, but there's uh, a listing here for well, uh, there's there's a link I should say for Cobra pre-crisis and post-crisis. So I was going to mention that post-crisis, he was actually used to great effects in uh, JSA, but that's not listed here. That's funny. He was. But he was changed, wasn't he, at that point? I thought he was the same character, was he not? I don't recall. Maybe he was supposed to be a different character. Uh, Yeah, he was used in uh, Outsiders, Checkmate, and Suicide Squad as well. Interesting. Cobra is the name used by two supervillains published by DC Uh, Comics. The Jeffrey Burr incarnation of Cobra and his brother Jason... First appeared in Cobra number one, February 1976, and were created by Jack Kirby. Jason Burr de- debuted at excuse me, Jason Burr debuted as Cobra in Faces of Evil, Cobra number one, March 2009. So they both have the same name, Burr. We have Jeffrey Burr and Jason Burr. But then, and Aaron but then it's in the picture, this is the Wikipedia page, it says Jeffrey Burr, who is the original, uh, as Cobra from JSA number 12. But he's got kind of a, he's got, just got a different costume, a different look about him. Yeah. Which I think the original look is very cool, so I would have, I would have stuck with that, but you know, what do yeah. I know? Who was over at Marvel? Who was the snake guy that used to hang out with Mr. Hyde? Was that wasn't his name Cobra yes. as well? Yes. Yeah, I liked him too. Yeah, yeah, he was a very different Cobra than this one. He was more of a yeah. slithery, whiny bitch. But I, but I got a kick cup. out of him too. There's a cover. I want to say it's it might be a JRJR cover. I forget, but there's a cover of Spider-Man hanging on the side of a building being attacked by that cobra that I always just really liked. Uh, I love the way it's drawn and colored. It's really, it's really sharp. Who is this person that keeps, I don't know you. Fuck off. Does somebody keep trying to reach you? Yeah. Mm, secret in my <laughs> I guess. Go away. Um, all right. So, I think that was all of my notes. Uh, yeah. Okay. So it's time to ready for grades? Yes. All right. Can't wait for this. All right. So we flip all the way back to the cover. I love this cover. You're right on the coloring. I hadn't really ever noticed that before, but you're you're absolutely right. It does make Batman somewhat hard to see here. I think it would have been maybe better to go with a, a darker color to really illustrate that we're underwater, you know, that we're deep in the ocean mm-hmm. type of thing. This is very bright and blue. It almost looks like the sky until you realize, Oh wait, no, they're underwater. This is bubbles and stuff. Um, but that said, I mean, that would be more on the colorist who actually may be apparel. He often did ink and color his own stuff. I'm really not sure, but I don't know. I still love it. I still think it's iconic. Um, it's hard to be objective because this is one of those books I've loved since I was a kid. Um, I'm still going to say it's an A. I really I love this cover. I think it's fantastic. I think it's really, really cool. Um, interior art. Just doing a quick flip back through to see if I had any quibbles with it, but I really don't think I did. I, I love Don Newton. I think the guy's fantastic. I, I loved his work with both of these characters um, individually. You know, his work with uh, 
with Batman in, uh, I think mostly in Detective, although he pro- he probably did some Batman as well, but I, I seem to recall him primarily as a Detective Comics um, artist, I think. And then, of course, you know, Aquaman. Um, I, I just, I love his stuff. I, I think this is just really beautiful, and it's such a shame the guy passed away so young because uh, I, I, I've enjoyed everything I've ever read that he's done. Um, so yeah, I'm going to go straight up A on the art, uh, you know, the interior art as well. Um, really the only quibble I have with any of the interior art is, uh, some of the coloring choices are a little bit weird. And again, it may be more a, a victim of its time in the printing process, but some of it is a little bit muddy, um, and a little bit dark with, with the inks and such, almost like, you know, like it maybe it has a little bit of black bleeding into some of the colors and, and everything, but, um, that's probably just you know the the printing uh, limitations of the day, but I, I still love it. I still think it's really fantastic. And then uh, story, I, I think I'm going to give the story a, a straight up A plus. I, I really think it's a fantastic story. It's very well done. Uh, it's very compelling. I like how all the characters are handled, and uh, I really like that it has a, a more modern feel to it. Um, you know, it's 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 a rather, I don't know, if I say adult story, it might have the wrong connotation. But it, it, you know, it, yeah, it's more grown up. Yeah, exactly. It's it's not silly. It's not, you know, fully cliches or weird, you know, funky dialogue. Um, it's a it's a spy novel, and I like that sort of thing. I, I think it plays very well. And I really respect Michelini's uh, ability to take a character – that is so, and, and maybe this hadn't happened yet at the time he was writing this character. I don't know, but Aquaman. I mean, he would become such a beleaguered character, you know, to where he he just. I mean, so many people like like to just pile on and, and pick on the guy, and 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 he's he's got he's garnered this reputation over time of being such a lame character. Now I don't know how Michelini actually felt about the character, but I never got the impression at all from the you know the adventures you know the time that he wrote the character that he thought that Aquaman was lame at all, and I like the way he used him and his powers and his abilities and everything, um, even some of his you know quote unquote sillier powers like being able to talk to fish. He used it in in smart and intelligent ways, and I, I really like that. You know, he didn't let it be silly. He he handled it in in a really good way. Um, about my only quibble on this though is that I wish that his strength was a little more consistent because it seems to me that if this guy is able to handle the pressures of the ocean to where he can literally swim to the bottom of the ocean and have no ill effects whatsoever, then he should be strong enough to rip through a net. Good point. Sort of thing. Good point. Um, I've always thought Aquaman should be portrayed as just a hell of a lot stronger than they normally would portray him. I, I think if you want to try to balance the scales somewhat so he doesn't fall into like Superman syndrome where he's just too powerful for his own good and for, for fun stories, then you make it where under the ocean, he's essentially Superman level, but when he's out of the water and on land, then his strength wanes over time to a point where he becomes, you know, like, you know, just a, a strong guy type of thing. 
Um, and I think to a certain degree they did kind of handle him that way, but uh, but still often um, I still think he's he's a little bit underpowered um, in some of these stories. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, think, I think it's very very inconsistent how his power set is used. I think some people yeah. some people you know make it, put him up there, and some people don't. I it's funny thing is with with Aquaman, my moment of revelation of all things was from an episode of the super friends. Uh, I don't remember what episode it was and I don't remember what the threat was, but it was him and Superman, uh, you know, were separated from the rest of the group and they got some like giant plows or something. And Aquaman takes one, he throws it to Superman. He's like one for you and one for me. And it's this thing must weigh, you know, a thousand pounds or whatever. And, and the, the two of them are like juggling them like they're nothing. And that was my first eye-opening moment where I was like, "Wow, he's like almost as strong as Superman." And and I don't think that's consistently used in the comics. I think it's you know he he's treated as I, you know I don't even know what what level of power you'd give him, but you know just just almost like just a little bit stronger than the average person. And I think he's way stronger than that. Right. So I, you know, I, I, the inconsistency in how his his strength level is uh, bothers me, and the inconsistency of of how his power set is bothers me. You know, with the talking to the fish and everything, it's not the the, the different writers don't seem to handle it the same way. So I kind of wish they they'd be just a little bit more, uh, you know, get get the Bible going on him as to exactly what he can and can't do, and and work with that. Anyway, sorry to interrupt uh, your your review. This. Oh no, not at all. I, I, I like when our conversations more free flowing like this. Um, th- to my recollection, the only New Fifty Two title I ever read was Aquaman, because I really liked what the writer and I want to say it was Jeff Johns, if I'm it not was, mistaken. Right out of the gate, um, really addressed some of those issues with the character, um. It would be the only instance of uh, of a new 52 title where I would actually recommend it to somebody because I enjoyed it, at least up to a point. I forget when I stopped reading it, but in the very beginning of that, and, and I, I want to say I read it for at least the first year, um, I really enjoyed it a lot because the very first issue I remember specifically addressing a lot of these issues. And one of the things that, that made me the happiest was uh, he foils a bank robbery like right in the very beginning of the first issue, and these guys are I want I'm pretty sure they're driving an armored truck, or they're driving some big vehicle, and they see Aquaman standing in the road and they just start laughing. Oh my God, it's Aquaman, and thinking he's a complete joke, and he spears them with his trident and flips the vehicle over and smashes it on the ground. So right there you get a, a feel for okay this guy's pretty powerful. But then they also shoot him. And I remember him taking a round to the head. And I think it does draw like a trickle of blood, but that's it. And I'm thinking, I like that. Because I remember specifically through in David, uh, Peter David's run on Aquaman, when he was the writer on Aquaman, um, he would often have instances where Aquaman was down at like the Titanic. I remember one specifically where they were, it was him and like 
I want to say a dolphin or somebody, some other character. And there was a gag where they were like sunbathing on the deck of the Titanic, which is ridiculous because the light doesn't reach that far down. But I mean, if this character could actually survive at the depth of the Titanic where the, where the water pressure is literally tons to the square inch, then he should be able to take a bullet to the head, you know? Right. And, and so I like that. I, I like that there was a little more consistency and a little more thought into, okay, how would this guy actually work? And what would his his strength be and his strength level be? And so I've always thought that, you know, far from being a lame-ass character, he should actually be one of the badasses of the DC universe, you know, given that, uh, you know, that toughness, you know, that, that ability to survive at those depths and everything. I, I think it's just the fact of, him being a, a water-based character and all that that is that is lent to this false impression that you can't really do anything all that cool with him because he's a fish guy. But yeah, I think that's selling him way short. I, I, I really, I've always been a big fan. I enjoyed of that Jeff Johns run as well. What I read of it, uh, and I remember in the first issue they have a scene where he like goes into a diner and he orders like the fish sandwich. Yeah. And the guy's like, well, you can't order a fish sandwich. And he's like, why not? <laughs> he's like, well, aren't, aren't they like your brothers? He's like, no. <laughs> and I, I don't know. I just got a big kick out of that. But, yeah, I I, I kind of enjoy the character. And I, I don't like that he's put down very frequently. Have you read much of the uh, the Apero Michelini run of his? Just piecemeal, honestly. It's good stuff. It is really yeah, good well, stuff. Yeah, this issue, you know, stands out as one. Uh, did you finish your numbers on it, or did we get sidetracked? I, I don't um, remember. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, I don't know if I gave an overall grade, but my overall grade would be straight up A. Yeah, okay. it's fantastic. I'm, I'm, I'm high it. on this book, but I'm not quite as high as you. Uh, I really like the cover, and but I, I tend to just hold i hold it against it that the layout <laughs> i hold it against it that, that, that there's no mention of green lantern uh and that's that is not aparo's fault i think the art on it is is good uh, the color bothers me the fact that you can't see batman who's you know basically the number one selling point at this point to our regret because superman should be but anyway uh you know you got to make him a little bit more obvious in there and you know as somebody who likes the character of aquaman you know, I would want the book to sell better. Uh, I'll give the cover. I'm going to give it a B plus. I think it's it's very solid. The artwork is is really good, and you know, I, I I like what it shows you from the story, even though it's the very very beginning of the story. But it's it's not just a poster of you know Batman, Aquaman, and Cobra. It's it's you know showing us something from the story. Uh, the interior artwork I think is very solid. Uh, I don't, I don't know if it's quite at the level, you know, I'm going to say an A minus. I, I, I think it's really good, but it's just, you know, uh, just a little bit more would put it over the hump for me, but it's an A minus. Uh, and the story flows really well. I'm going to put that at the same level. I'm going to put that as an A minus also, and I'm going to give the book overall an A minus. I, I really enjoyed it. I'm just, you know, holding back on the top grade. I can live with that. So... That's our look at two random books. We did it. <laughs> Yay. Yay. Now, next time out, maybe we'll do two random. Maybe we'll do something else. I do want to, at some point, and you and I talked about this a little bit, I want to do a, a focus episode on Cobra. Yeah, you know, I'd be on down. On the character that. in general. 
And, you know, that's going to require totally me to sit and read those seven seven issues plus the, uh, the you know, the, the follow-up uh, DC Superstars uh, and then see where it went in, in the 2000s a little bit because I'm that, that is a little bit of a, a blank spot for me. But I, I'd like to at some point do that. So that's something to... I'd be down for that. To eventually. In the meanwhile, thanks everybody for listening and we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.